Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusala, coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, what you're about to hear is something unique. Uh, myself and Sister Benedicta, who is a Carmelite sister and lives at the most sacred heart of Los Angeles, we came together to give presentations on meditation and contemplation to the combined UCLA Catholic Club and Buddhist Club. We had pizza and discussion, and this would be uh, the beginning of our uh of our hour and a half together. I gave a short presentation and Sister Benedicta gave a short presentation. Uh, in the next few weeks I hope to have the questions and answers posted as a podcast as well. But for now, this is my presentation and Sister Benedicta's presentation on meditation and contemplation in our traditions. No, that's fine. Are we all set? Now. Okay. I've been asked to, to be the lead-off uh, speaker, so I will start with uh, saying that this wouldn't have happened unless we had had Second Vatican Council. I sound like a Catholic, probably. <laughs> but does everybody know about Second Vatican Council? Is that familiar to everybody? Because in that council, there was a document called Nostra Aetate that said it was okay for the Catholics to talk to the Buddhists. And that is a, um, an amazing document. Uh, the Protestants are still working on that. <laughs> so I'm going to speak a little bit about uh, Buddhist meditation, but I, I, I have to give you the context of Buddhist meditation because Buddhists simply j just don't meditate. It's based on the teachings of the Buddha. So yesterday was Vesak, and what Vesak means is the full moon day of May. And it happened yesterday. And that was the day that the Buddha was born. That was the day that the Buddha achieved enlightenment. And that was the day that the Buddha died, which is really convenient if you're a Buddhist. <laughs> One day to remember. So it's, uh, it was a very auspicious occasion. So what did the Buddha come up with? Why is there Buddhism in the world? Well, it seems to me the reason for Buddhism is because there is suffering in the world. And when the Buddha was uh, a prince, he went into the streets of the city and he saw old people and he saw sick people and he saw dead people. And it really made him uh, feel uncomfortable. And I imagine that perhaps he petitioned the gods of India saying, please step forward and end all the human suffering I've just experienced. And the gods stayed quiet. None of them stepped forward. And for me, that is when the Buddha said to himself, well, if they won't do it, I guess I'll have to do it. Now, this was Siddhartha thinking to himself that he's going to take on human suffering and find the answer. So at the age of 16, he was married. At the age of 29, he had his first child. And after his first child was born, he left his wife and child in the care of his parents and went to the edge of the forest and took off all his princely clothes and threw away all his jewelry and cut off all his hair. And for six years, he worked on the problem of human suffering. Where did human suffering come from? 
And if he was able to figure that out, how to end it? Well, because of his ascetic practices, because of his meditation practices, he was able to see where suffering came from. Suffering comes uh, because we have lust. Suffering comes because we have greed. Suffering comes because we have hatred and anger. And suffering comes because we're deluded. So he found the cause, desire, craving, a thirst that can't be quenched. And then he was able to find a solution. And the solution in Buddhism is called nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive. Nirvana is the end of all karma. And nirvana is the end of all future rebirth. Now, those other two aspects may not sound interesting to you, but the first one surely is, how can I end my suffering? So, as a Buddhist, we don't talk about God. I'm so happy the sister is here tonight. What we talk about is the human condition. We talk about, we talk about why we have to suffer and how we can end our suffering. So, the Buddha said, if you want to end your suffering today, you need to accept the five precepts. Five precepts are, I will train myself not to take life. I will train myself not to take what is not given. I will train myself not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will train myself not to lie. I will train myself not to consume intoxicants. Those are the five training precepts that every Buddhist accepts when they choose Buddhism as their religion or their spiritual practice. That is also the foundation for Buddhist meditation. In Buddhism, we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, and the Noble Eightfold Path allows us to see the, the discipline morality aspects of the path, the mental transformation aspects of the path, which we call meditation, and the wisdom aspects of the path. So in the Eightfold Path, three of those path factors deal with meditation. They are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When I'm speaking of right effort, I'm not talking about the body. I'm talking about the mind. Right effort is to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising, to abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen, to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. And if by some chance of fate or good karma you have a skillful thought, you want to maintain it as long as possible. Let me define for you a skillful thought and an unskillful thought. Unskillful, lust, greed, hatred, delusion. Skillful, love, generosity, compassion, wisdom. Let me give you a personal example of an unskillful thought. Yesterday, I found myself in Vaughn's supermarket. There I was standing on the bakery aisle, looking at the Entenmann's chocolate cakes. I said to myself, I'm buying two, one for tonight and one for tomorrow. Upon further reflection, I realized that thought was based in greed. If I had had a thought of generosity, I would buy two, one for me and one for you. I ended up buying one. That was my compromise. <laughs> so, right effort is, is watching how your thought process works. What, do the, what kind of value do the thoughts have? We have neutral thoughts, we have skillful thoughts, we have unskillful thoughts. Now we come to the two kinds of Buddhist meditation. They are samatha, vipassana, tranquility, insight. 
the Buddha himself learned tranquility meditation from the yogis of India. The Buddha rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve nirvana. The word rediscovered is an important word because the Buddha I speak of, Siddhartha, was the 28th Buddha. There were 27 Buddhas before him. So, Buddhism, the path to perfect mental health, the path to the end of suffering had been lost in the world. And Siddhartha was born and rediscovered Buddhism. And his teachings are still valid and useful today. He learned Samatha meditation from the yogis of India. There were 40, 40 different kinds of tranquility meditation. There were four kinds of insight meditation. When the Buddha achieved his nirvana, he stopped doing insight meditation, but until the moment he died, he continued to do tranquility meditation. Tranquility meditation brings mind and body into balance and allows you to come to a place of acceptance with pain. Now, there is a difference between pain and suffering. Buddhism says Suffering is optional, pain isn't. That's why we have UCLA Medical Center right across the street. What is the difference? The best definition I've heard came from a 7th grader named Esmeralda. I was speaking to her class in Glendale, California. They they were studying history and they just found out about Buddhism. And I gave my presentation. At the end of my presentation, little Esmeralda raised her hand and said, Reverend Kusla, I know the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. Now, I don't know how she knew that, but she did. And so, as a Buddhist, what we're sort of working on is coming to a profound acceptance of the way things are. And if we can accept the way things are, we don't have to suffer. Suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. So... 40 kinds of samatha meditation, 40 kinds of tranquility meditation. Let me give you just a real simple outline of that. For instance, our object of meditation may be the sensation of breath. The sensation goes out, the sensation comes in. The meditator would sit in a comfortable, stable position, generally on the floor, bring their attention to the tip of the nose, and become aware of the sensation going out and coming in, going out and coming in. When they were able to get to a place of one-pointedness, they would have a greater sense of happiness in their mind, a greater sense of pleasure in their body, and a greater sense of equanimity as well. So the first level of tranquility has five characteristics. It has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Applied thought and sustained thought is bringing your attention to the tip of the nose and holding it there. In order to get to the next level of tranquility, we call it the next jhana, We have to give something up. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. If you're doing Buddhist meditation right, you're giving it up. You're not gaining anything. Now, let me let you in on a secret. That means that we're already perfect, according to Buddhism. That our perfection already resides inside. The problem is, though, we have a few hindrances that need to be removed. The hindrances, again, would be lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. As we concentrate more and more on the sensation of breath, 
we now find that we don't need to apply our thought and sustain it on the object of meditation. Now our mind simply rests on the sensation of breath. So we've come to the second level of tranquility with no applied thought and sustained thought. We want to go deeper. We want to go to the third level of tranquility. We have to give something up. What are we going to give up now? We're going to give up our attachment to pleasure. Now, I know that nobody wants to give up their pleasure, but really what I'm speaking about is the attachment to having pleasure. And if you are able to give up your attachment to pleasure, you now go into the next level of tranquility. And there's two characteristics left, happiness and equanimity. We've got to give something up. We're now going to give up our attachment to happiness, and when we succeed at doing that, we have perfect balance of mind, we have equanimity, we have profound acceptance of the way things are. But you might say to yourself, but isn't that a big price to pay to give up attachment to pleasure and attachment to happiness? But in, while we're giving up our attachment to pleasure, we're also giving up our aversion to pain. When we're giving up our attachment to happiness, we're giving up our aversion to sadness. So most people would like to give up sadness. Most people would like to give up pain. But as a Buddhist, the price is giving up attachment. Okay, you've achieved it. There you are, this perfect balance. You're sitting on the ground. Everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. You get up off your cushion. You leave the zendo. You get into your car. You go on the 405 freeway. Somebody cuts you off. Hatred, anger. And that's what the Buddha found. He found it was a temporary fix to suffering, but it wasn't permanent. And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation. The four kinds of insight meditation are mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. The idea in mindfulness meditation is to have a direct experience of the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. We come to realize that everything in this world is subject to change in a constant state of flux. There's nothing we can ever hold on to. And ultimately, there's no one to hold on to anything as well. We come to realize as a Buddhist that this world, this entire world, is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's not always unsatisfactory. But it's ultimately unsatisfactory because we're born... And because we're born, we have to get sick. Because we're born, we have to get old. Because we're born, we have to die. The Buddha went on to say, if that's not bad enough, everything you love, cherish, and want to hold on to will be taken away from you. And the culprit is impermanence and change. And then if that's not bad enough, there are people in this world you don't like and places in this world you don't want to be in, and you're around those people in those places far too often, and there's nothing you can do about it. Some people look at Buddhism as being really pessimistic. I look at it as being really realistic. It says to you, you're in charge, that you make the world what it is. And in order to make the world the way you want it to be, you have to change your mind. Some meditators say, lose your mind and come to your senses. But in the best sense. So, as a Buddhist, we see impermanence everywhere. We see unsatisfactoriness ultimately everywhere. 
and then we see the most complicated and unique part of the Buddhist religion, I think, and it is called not-self, that we come to realize there is no one home. Somebody left the light on. And what that means to us is that we don't have a self, we don't have a soul, we don't have anything that exists independently, we don't have anything that's unconditional. And if you're used to hearing the word soul and God, this is going to be a really weird statement to hear. Because we feel, as a Buddhist, that when we look carefully in mind and body, all we find is process, we never find event. And our meditation practice is allowing us to come to the direct experience of that process, but not the event. When we fully understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, it has a liberating quality. It allows us to, to be in the world, but not of it. It allows us to be of service to community because we are less affected by the suffering of others. We don't take it on ourselves. We're in there helping others end their suffering in the same way we've tried to end our own suffering. And our final goal as a Buddhist is to have two things in place. They are compassion and wisdom. Thank you. It has been about 30 years when I finally got into UCLA. <laughs> I came here after high school and they wouldn't take me. <laughs> of course, after ditching 42 days in my senior year, that might have had something to do with it. <laughs> kind of messed up the grades there in the last year. Um, well, God had a plan. Okay. Um, it is an interesting thing that both Buddhism and Catholicism have such strong monastic traditions um, because philosophically they're <laughs> way out there. Um, Something in particular, Reverend Kusala said towards the end of his presentation, um, we're able to go out and help and be of service because others, other people's suffering doesn't affect us as much. Um, I think we would say we have got to go out and be of service because other people's suffering affects us more. Um, someone was saying that they weren't familiar with the, uh, the word or the practice meditation in connection with Catholicism. That is probably because it has been called so many other things. Um, if you go back to the Psalms, even in the Old Testament, uh, there is a lot of repetition in many of the psalms, giving them a meditative quality in a certain sense. In 
the very earliest Christian monasticism, the, the, the mothers and the fathers of the desert, um, in many cases, they had memorized the entire book of Psalms or a large part of it. They deliberately restricted themselves, limited themselves to manual labor so that their mind would be free enough during the course of the day to keep repeating those psalms. They would not be distracted by anything else that they were doing. Um, However, whether you called it prayer or meditation or recollection or the practice of the presence of God or contemplation, many names, it's almost... uh, you could, you could kind of do a, a historical study just tracing the 2,000 years change in vocabulary in Catholic spirituality. And it's all meditation also, if you, you know, define the word kind of broadly. The, as I was thinking about this over the last few days, I have a certain... You know, obviously not like Reverend Kusala, but I have some familiarity with the, um, the if you could call it that, the spirituality, the, the philosophy, the goals of meditation in the East, whether Buddhist or Hindu. And they, someone was also mentioning technique. I know that technique is significantly important in Eastern meditation because a lot of what a person is trying to accomplish, and I was happy to hear this vocabulary being used, tranquility. And it is possible to practice technique in such a way as to become significantly more tranquil. I was talking to a group of uh, in, in a parish a couple months ago, and he said, for instance, anything you do, and let's cut it way down, minimum, 20 minutes a day, anything you did, seriously, intensely, faithfully, 20 minutes a day, every single day, is going to have a profound effect on you. Let's say that you start running flat out all your might. Speed walking, which is even harder, 20 minutes a day, every day. Is that going to have an effect on your physical condition? Big time. On the other hand, if you're not the exercise type, let's pick something else. Every night, 7 p.m., You're going to throw the books out the window, and you're going to sit down, and for 20 minutes, you're going to chow down and eat all the chocolate ice cream you can (laughs) for 20 minutes. Is that going to have an effect on your physical condition? Yes. Meditation, in terms of even simply technique, I don't know if you're familiar with this. When I was... um, I can say things like this now. When I was your age, (laughs) that was something that was very big. 
uh, called Transcendental Meditation. And it was kind of a an American version, a synthesis, a canned form, supposedly, of Eastern meditation. And you go to this person and he teaches you this and that and he gives you a uh, uh, chant to repeat and certain instructions and so forth. Okay, and you pay him a certain amount of money. Okay. <laughs> and people discovered that this was helping them to be more tranquil. People started using this to lower their blood pressure, to, um, you know, slow down their heart, to do all kinds of wonderful, healthy things. And it, it, the results were measurable. It had an effect. I don't, I don't know if you can still find any transcendental meditation centers around. It was a very bad boy. In the late 60s, an MD, I don't remember his name, but he wrote a book called The Relaxation Response in which he demonstrated that you don't have to go to the TM Center and pay them a bunch of money. Read my book. I'll show you how to meditate and you will lower your blood pressure and slow down your heart, etc. Something you do intensely. 20 minutes a day, never mind, two or three hours a day, is going to, if you do it faithfully, it's going to have a big effect on you. Uh, meditation techniques as such are of interest um, and value in Catholicism because it is helpful, it is valuable, and it has been something recommended from the earliest days of Christianity to discipline the mind and emotions in such a way that you can meditate, you can pray with, without or with less distraction, especially distractions that are just plain physical and technique is, is very valuable for that sort of thing. The analogy, I think, that is the best one I've been able to think of, I think that the Buddhist enters a place of quiet, and peace and self-knowledge and the most honest possible understanding of the world through meditation and deals honestly, calmly with that reality. Personally, I think of it as learning to, in a sense, turn off the radio, turn off the TV, go to a place where the entertainment and the distraction and the fake and the plastic and the nonsense just isn't there, and discover the world as it is, 
and yourself as it is. And do not fill your life. Don't allow yourself to be busied, to be deluded with the artificial and the fake. Catholicism, however, says, yeah, you turn off the TV, you turn off the radio, you get away from the nonsense and the plastic and the fake, and you go to that quiet place and you learn to be quiet. And the technique is very, very valuable. And you learn to see yourself and the world as they are. And you wait. Because if you are willing to stay there, you won't stay there alone. You're going to discover you have company. Um, Buddhism is a philosophy, I think I can say that, Mm -hmm. and a psychology. And as much as I know about the Buddha, he was a profound psychologist and a profoundly honest man. He did not give people false hopes. And as I understand it, many of his followers became quite frustrated with him because he wouldn't tell them that they had a soul and they were going to live forever and they were going to be happy ever after. That's ego. You just want to survive. Now, will you let go of it? But is there a God? The only honest thing the man can do is say, well, if there is, fine, you go find him. You cannot go find God. He was right. He can find you, however. It would be a shame if he showed up. (coughs) And you missed him. Because you had the TV on so loud you couldn't hear the knocking on the door. And in Catholicism, the practice of meditation, prayer, recollection, the presence of God, the many things we call it with different emphases, is to make space, to make quiet to make an interior emptiness for God to come in and for us to get to know each other. I think, listening to the Reverend, I now have a better idea why our two traditions have both had so much monasticism in them. The Reverend was talking about losing our attachment to pleasure. Teresa's nemesis, 
I think she was scared of him myself. Another Carmelite, John of the Cross, wrote and wrote and wrote and preached and counseled in this regard. Pleasure is not the problem. It becomes the problem. And the problem is, of course, attachment. The lust, the anger, the greed. We describe it slightly differently. The seven capital sins. In our theology, and psychology for that matter, the appetites, the drives that are part of human nature, belong there. And to try to crush them, eliminate them, is actually a heresy. Um, The Puritans fell into this heresy. Um, It it arises with a new name every couple centuries. It is a, uh, in the Christian world, it it takes the form of uh, suspicion and uh, misplaced guilt and hatred of color and music and food and sports and sleep. In our theology, those drives are actually needs. They're put there by God. But, hmm, unpopular doctrine, but it's part of our theology. It's very basic to our theology. And this is the difference between Catholicism, a religion, and Buddhism, a philosophy. Catholicism is a faith in a supernatural person, and in some cases supernatural events, the fall of man, described in a sort of metaphorical way in the third chapter of Genesis, what's the very first thing after they blow it, break the relationship with God, Go back and read it. It's absolutely hysterical. They hide in the bushes. They hear God coming and they jump in the bushes because now he won't be able to find them. (laughs) Right. Fear. Irrational fear. And after he coaxes them out of the bushes, what's going on here? Oh, my God, you ate. (laughs) I guess God doesn't see it. My God, huh? Um, (laughs) You ate from the tree. (laughs) You ate from the tree I told you not to eat from. And he starts giving them, okay, got a few news bulletins for you. This is what life is going to be like from here on in. The very first thing. Why did you do this? It was her! (laughs) And when the attention is turned to her, it was a snake! (laughs) Fear, hiding in the bushes. 
And the very next thing that manifests itself is selfishness. Let her take the blame. This was her idea. Hey, he talked me into it. I just... <laughs> and behind those seven capital sins that we're used to hearing about, the disorder that's in the human personality is basically fear and selfishness. In relationship with God, these two did not have to be afraid of anything. And they had nothing to be selfish about with each other or the world around them. From the time of the fall on, those drives are in there. But now they are disordered by fear and selfishness. So normal, healthy self-assertion becomes pride. I'm not good. I'm better. Strength and determination become anger. Get out of my way. Normal sexual desire becomes completely detached from human relationship and affection and becomes lust. It's all fear and selfishness. It manifests in these things that we call the seven capital sins. But it's fear and selfishness. And it is all based on the fact that we are supposed to have God in there. And we threw him away. And the pieces don't really fit together anymore. The sacraments, yes, but tonight we're talking about prayer. Because in Christianity, meditation is prayer, a form of prayer, a type of prayer. Meditation is about opening up that space inside that was meant to be occupied by God. Submitting the disorder, the selfishness, the fear the wounds that come from everybody else's selfishness and fear and handing it over to our creator again, being willing to get out of the bushes and say, I blew it, fix me. And I think we spend most of us a lifetime getting fixed and it's none too long. And the ultimate Final getting fixed doesn't even happen in this world. A few people come so close that you can see them practically in heaven before they die. The fear and the selfishness are really and truly gone. And those are the people that we call saints in our tradition. The you know, at the end of the, the creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, there is the phrase that we believe in the resurrection. There, at the end of the creed, we're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the resurrection of us. Physical 
resurrection. The resurrection of the body. I have always been fascinated by that story because I think it just answers all of the questions. And I do this in, in, in eighth grade after eighth grade and high school classes. Okay, guys. I read Genesis 3. Okay, you heard the whole thing. Now, why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? Because they ate the apple. Because they disobeyed. Because God was mad. That's not what it says. Not what it says at all. God has talked to Adam, talked to Eve, cussed out the snake, and he goes into some kind of like council meeting because he starts talking in the plural and he's not talking to any of these characters. The man and the woman have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. They must not be allowed to reach out and eat from the tree of life also. That's why they're sent out. God gives them leather garments because apparently the fig leaves were not holding up very well. To send them out in the cold puts a guard around the tree of life lest they eat of it also and live forever. Wait a minute. They were created to live forever. Live forever is all over the New Testament. God is saying, we can't let them live forever. Then Jesus comes so they can live forever. The best analogy I've heard, I think, came originally from Fulton Sheen. He would give the example of, for instance, a uh, chalice that has been consecrated to be used for mass. You don't use it for other things. Um, what if this thing is stolen and thrown around and wrecked? How can you ever, because it, the object is actually consecrated to the altar to be used in this one way, how could you ever restore it to its position? There's a way. You remove all the jewels. You polish the scratches out. Set them aside. Take the gold and absolutely, completely melt it down. Reform the chalice from scratch. Put the jewels back. Death is that process. The soul survives. We polish up the jewels in purgatory if they're not polished by the time we die. We set them aside. Let the body disintegrate, literally. Let it fall apart. And at the resurrection, put the two back together again because a human soul is not a human being. And this is why to hate the things of the body is a heresy in Christianity. We are not supposed to be angels. We were created to be the one material creature that has a spiritual soul. We are supposed to be body and soul. Adam and Eve have got to leave 
they've got to suffer, they've got to die, which is the ultimate horror for a creature that constantly seeks, by nature, eternity. Why did Buddha's disciples go nuts when he wouldn't tell them anything about eternity? Because it is... I used to argue with this about my theology professors. I used to take care of horses when I was a kid. They have stomachs. They have stomachs you can hardly fill. Cows are the same way. They want grass. If this creature has an appetite for grass, and this creature has an appetite for grass, and that creature has an appetite for grass, it would be a very strange universe if there was no grass. Human beings have an appetite absolutely insatiable for eternity. We don't want to die, at least not in the sense of, like, annihilation. Why? How can you have an appetite for something that absolutely doesn't exist? You were put together to want to be... Thank you. Well, that's it. That was my presentation and Sister Benedicta's presentation on meditation and contemplation in our traditions. I hope you found it useful, uh, and I hope you find it interesting. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info that's kusala.info if you'd like to know more about Sister Benedicta and the Carmelite Sisters please visit www.carmel c-a-r-m-e-l dash m-s-h dot org carmel c-a-r-m-e-l dash m-s H dot org. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, that does it. Um, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.